Welcome to Decode Your Burnout, the podcast where we crack the code on burnout based on three primary factors, your programming, environment, and personality. We also feature experts who debunk the myths about what it takes to be successful in their industry and spin those tips to fit the workplace so you can optimize the way you work. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Grossman, a psychologist turned coach, author, and burnout expert. If you're burned out and want to go from exhausted to extraordinary, book a free breakthrough session with me by going to bookachatwithsharon.com. And if you want to see how you're doing and what to focus on next, download the burnout checklist. You'll find the link in the show notes or go to bit.ly forward slash check your burnout. Now let's get started. Hello, Decode Your Burnout fans. Welcome to another episode with me, Dr. Sharon Grossman. And today we're joined by Dr. Palay Raymond. He is an educator, musician, software architect, and best-selling author of Profitable Happiness, the five key habits of a high-performing organization. He seeks to change the world through book, software, training, and music by helping organizations build cultures of high employee engagement and business performance. Born in a war-torn African village, he's experienced both humble beginnings and the victory of the American dream. His unique journey has taught him what truly drives success, and it's not who or what we are. It's our ability to unleash the profitable happiness within us to solve the world's problems and dance to the music of our lives. Dr. Pillay holds a PhD in organization and management. He has has delivered global learning solutions to Fortune 500 clients, won numerous speaking awards, and landed his songs on the top Billboard and UK music charts. Today, Dr. Pillay is the host of the Profitable Happiness podcast, where we recently recorded our episode, and where he artfully combines his passions for music, software, and business education to help people close the gap between potential and performance. Dr. Pillay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharon. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So you have quite an interesting story. Normally, we would start with somebody's burnout story, but you've got something that goes like really far out because I think the majority of the people that come on the show don't have those kinds of rags to riches, you know, <laughs> Africa to U.S. kind of stories. So tell us a little bit about your journey and where you really started, what life was like, what brought you here and what brought you to focusing specifically on workplace culture. Mm. Really appreciate that question, Dr. Sharon. And contrary to what I presented to you, I'm actually going to start from burnout and then go back to how I got here, because it is so important that we understand why we do what we do. My burnout story is actually something that happened maybe a year and a half ago. I was presenting at a conference for a company that I worked for. I was a vice president in that company, and I was doing a great job. I had people clapping and all kinds of things were just, everything was perfect. And the CEO, my boss, was sitting there watching me. And right after the uh, presentation, I went up to him and I said, 
I'm quitting. And he was surprised. Why are you quitting? And I, I just said, I've had enough. And I had a positive and peaceful exit. But the truth was, my relationship with that leader was so bad. Mm. I was walking on eggshells. I was afraid of everything I was saying. I was unhappy. And it's funny how you realize how unhappy you are exactly when you should be as happy as you should be. You should mm -hmm. be like thrilled right now because you've done a great job. Everything's perfect. But your burnout has finally built up and caught up with you. And that's what happened to me. I was unhappy. And I know that so many people in their jobs are just not happy. And they haven't yet understood why. They haven't yet put their arms around it. But some way and some day, it might just blow up in your face. And you're like, okay, I'm miserable. I don't want to be here. I'm burnt out. So I think that's my sort of the place where I woke up and realized I'm really burnt out. I need a break from all this. I need to start over. But how did I get here? How did I, back to your question, how did I realize that happiness, just the idea of happiness was so important to me. That goes back to my childhood. I was born in a war-torn village, basically. We were refugees running around, hiding from soldiers and bombs in the middle of the Biafran Civil War in the late 1960s. And my mother and I were one of these refugees, and my mother could not give me food. She could not give me shelter. She didn't have those to give. But to keep me alive, she did something I would never have expected. She would simply sing to me. And she would sing these songs to me. And these songs would sort of play a little trick on me. The songs would divert my attention away from hunger and fear and all those terrible things out there and make me happy. And that's when I learned that this thing called happiness is so important to our survival that it actually precedes success. It's more important to be happy first before you achieve success and not the other way around. And somehow, sometimes you get hit by that lightning. That's the one that has driven my entire life is this pursuit of happiness, true happiness. And sometimes when you're burnt out, you realize part of what's going on is your happy's gone <laughs> and you need to reclaim it. So that's my story. Well, first of all, I love the story about your mom singing to you because I think what it really pinpoints is that it takes something so small to make us happy, even in the worst of circumstances that we always have something that we can do. And those are obviously very extreme circumstances. I think most of us deal with stress in our daily lives, but maybe not to that extent, which then hopefully that puts it into perspective for us. And yeah, if you're really stressed out, Hum a tune. That could be something or listen to your favorite music, right? Because we know that music actually can change your state. So that's really good. And then the other thing that really stood out to me was you were talking about being on stage. Everything looks amazing. Everything looks perfect. And then you are inside so unhappy that you're ready to quit. And I think that's a reminder that sometimes whether you're a manager or somebody else, you sometimes think like everything is one way when it's really something else, right? Like you think that the people that are working under you might be because they're performing well, because they haven't complained. You might think everything's great. And yet they might be burned out. They might be on the brink of quitting. So it's important for us to 
check in. It's important for us to figure out not what it looks like, but what's actually going on on the ground, right? And I just interviewed Emma Codd for this podcast who works for Deloitte. And we talked all about workplace culture. We talked about psychological safety and all the things that are really important for people to be able to show up and say, you know what? I need a day off. I'm having a mental health challenge. I'm not feeling well. A lot of times if you're working in an organization where it's not safe for you to say those things, like, and maybe you can also share from your experience, like what would happen if you told that former boss of yours, I am having a struggle here. I need some time off or whatever your needs were at the time that you couldn't really talk about. What would they have said if you would have come forward to them? Because I think that's an example of what it's like when there isn't psychological safety. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, myself included, so many of us live in quiet desperation. We are walking around terribly unfulfilled, terribly stressed, and we have no tools to address it. And <laughs> the worst possible thing would be to confess it <laughs> to a leader like that, especially the one that I, I had to deal with. That would not have produced a positive conversation because for that particular leader, the only thing that mattered was results. You know, How many of these results did we get today? How many phone numbers? How many emails? How many sales results? And when the conversation is not about the bottom line and it's just about this fuzzy stuff, no connection no conversation. So maybe you call that psychological safety or the lack of psychological safety. I call that a war zone. We are running around fighting internally and externally. And it's not a good place to be if you're an employee. Yeah, because it puts you into fight or flight. Speaking of fighting, your brain perceives it as a war zone where you have to now get into survival mode and be on alert. And that's the opposite of feeling safe. Yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, I think this is really a call for organizations to start thinking about more than just the bottom line, because we know you can't just focus on profit without having people there who want to stick around, right? And so I'm curious yeah. from your experience when you were working at this organization, it might not even be a whole cultural problem. In other words, it's not the organization always that's at fault. It could be just like that one person. And I've had experiences like that too, where it was just one person. And so I'm curious, was it the culture? Was it this just one person phenomenon? And if it's just the one person, the bad apple, if you will, what can organizations do to make sure that that's not happening? How do they keep that in check? Well. In my case, that one person was at the very top of the organization. And they say the fish stinks from the head down, right? So if the top of the organization is not very emotionally intelligent or willing to understand that employees have happiness needs and well-being needs, then all of the organization will adopt that just to survive. And so I think to your point, we have to look at leadership because everything starts from leadership. If leadership has the opinion that the most important thing here is the bottom line, and that's it, we're going to have a problem in the entire culture. And that's why I wrote my book, Profitable Happiness, because 
the whole idea of profitable happiness is this. You got two different extremes. On the one hand, you have leaders. And on the other hand, you have employees. Employees want happiness, engagement, well-being, things that you might want to call soft. And leaders want the hard things like sales results, and customer acquisition, and customer retention, all these metrics that are more, if you will, hard or tangible. And you know what happens is leaders tend to focus more on the sales results and the tangible outcomes and not as much on the employees' needs. Just like the parable of the golden goose. If you remember, the golden goose had a bunch of eggs and golden eggs were coming out and the farmer was so excited. Oh my gosh, look at all these eggs. And he's like, hey, I have an idea. I'm going to kill the golden goose so I can get even more of the eggs right now. Well, guess what? He kills the golden goose. And of course, there are no more golden eggs. Those golden eggs are the results and the sales outcome and all those kinds of things. But if you get rid of or don't focus enough on the employee needs, the golden goose needs, you kill that, you're not going to get anything. And so I think the idea of profitable happiness is how do we build organizations where companies find profit? They are profitable, but they also find employee happiness along the way. And the two go together. That's the goal of profitable happiness. And that's what I've built my book and my software around. I can't really speak to this myself, but I know that there's data that show that when you embrace the culture of your organization, you end up being more profitable. I know that's true from like an entrepreneurial perspective, like when you focus on service and not chase the money that eventually you become profitable just because people connect with you and they want whatever it is that you have and they buy you, right? You're the product. So you really show up to serve. And I think that's kind of like an analogy. I'm not saying you have to be a nonprofit organization, but I'm saying if you don't just think about your customers, but you also think of the people who are providing the services within your organization, because as you say, if you saw them, each one of them as a golden goose, I think is a perspective shift of, okay, I really got to get my game on, right? I got to make sure that I'm not being this person at the top. That's for me, all this negativity is trickling down. However, here's what I see a potential problem to this idea, right? Is if the people at the very top are not very emotionally intelligent, which by the way, happens quite a bit. <laughs> I found, right, quite a bit. We've got people who are these like ladder climbers and a lot of them are narcissists and they step on toes and they do whatever it takes to get up to the top. Then it's kind of inevitable that it's going to be a toxic workplace if that person's there. And so yeah. what we're saying is that you need to be emotionally intelligent in order to provide your workplace with the kind of what I call hashtag irresistible culture then you need somebody that is emotionally intelligent. And what we're saying is oftentimes they're not. So we're kind of in a bind where we're saying we need that, but that's not what we have. And if you're not emotionally intelligent, you don't even know what you don't know. You don't know yeah. that you're not self-aware. You don't know that what you're doing is toxic and you're operating, if you're a narcissist, out of fear. You're operating out of envy. You are not thinking about, why you're doing what you're doing. If you're making people walk on eggshells or if you're micromanaging people, chances are you're not right. 
Like there's something going on inside of you that you haven't dealt with that you're maybe not even aware of. A lot of it is subconscious. So organizations who have those kinds of leaders may not even understand where do I start? Like what happens? And and if you're the one running the whole organization, then good luck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're so right. In this particular case, I had a very strong micromanager <laughs> who had no idea of emotional intelligence and all the things you're talking about. But I think there's actually some hope. There is a solution that anyone, even leaders who are like the type of leader I've described, if they take the philosophy that once they align their needs with the needs of the employees, and so you've got both profit and happiness walking hand to hand, it solves every problem. I'll give you an example. You made a great example about serving being your focus. And if you serve, then you'll get more business, even though it's like an indirect thing. Well, it's the same thing with employee happiness. That If you say to people, go just be happy, they're not just going to be happy, just magically wake up happy. What's going to happen is you tell people, go make other people happy. And the funny thing is when we make other people happy, we become happy. It happens all the way from the top down to the employees. When employees make customers happy, they get happy. When leaders make employees happy, they get happy. Everybody becomes happy when they focus on serving other people. I'll give you a little story I love to use. There's a classroom of kids. All these kids were given one balloon. And they were told that they need to sort of own that balloon and write their name on it. And they threw all the balloons out into the hallway. So now... Every kid had a name on a balloon thrown out into the hallway. And now the teacher says, okay, now go out into the hallway and find your balloon, right? All these balloons are flying all over the hallway, right? These kids scrambled and scrambled for a long time and nobody was able to find their balloon because balloons were everywhere. And then teacher said, here, let's try something different. Grab any balloon, bring it back into class, read the name on it and go give it to the person who wrote the name on that balloon, the person who owns that balloon. In about two or three minutes, everybody had a balloon. Everybody was able to read the balloon and give it to someone else. And that's the whole point. When you focus not on making yourself happy, but on making other people around you happy, so much easier. It gets everybody happy that way. And so the leader that I'm talking about, plus everybody else, if we just focus on how can I make someone else's life really good today? That's a great beginning for solving this problem of stress and happiness in organizations. Unfortunately, if you are a narcissist, it's not a question that enters your mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> again, we're back to that. But to your point, there is actual research that shows that giving as opposed to taking actually increases our happiness. And so even when you're struggling, they say that refocusing from yourself to other people can help you feel happier because you're helping somebody else improve their life. And we feel good about ourselves when we do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about culture and happiness and profitability and some of the issues that get in the way. I know that there are some myths that people hold to be true and you're here to set us straight. So what's the first myth that you want to debunk for us, Dr. Pele? Well, let's start with the idea of happiness by itself. A lot of people think that happiness doesn't affect the bottom line. Happiness is a frivolous thing. In fact, I once worked for someone who just announced to everyone and said, hey, guys, 
I don't want any more of this emotional stuff in the office, okay? <laughs> Let's just get this job done. And in my mind, I'm like, the whole job is about our emotions. We show up and we are productive or not based on, in large part, our how we feel. And so I think the idea that happiness doesn't affect the bottom line needs to be debunked. And there's a lot of research that makes a very causal correlation between happiness and employee productivity. But I think the most important way to look at it is if you look at companies that have actually done this, like Zoom, we're on a Zoom call right now. Zoom is very well known, the organization, as a company that set a culture based on happiness. A happiness-driven culture will definitely outperform cultures that don't focus on employee happiness. And that's just been the story of many companies that have tried it. And so I would say, if you want the bottom line to go up, start focusing on that golden goose, which is the employees. Help them to all feel like they have a sense of purpose. They're happy at work. They're fully engaged. And you'll see productivity rise. It's proven. It's out there. It's such an important thing for us to keep coming back to because, as you said, there are a lot of people who were raised to not express themselves emotionally. It's not something that they talked about as a family. They don't necessarily understand their own emotions. They may not know how to bring that into the workplace in that blending kind of way that you've been talking about. And yet, as you say, everything that we do, all the actions, the behaviors, everything that we take part in is very much affected by our emotions. If you look at the model of cognitive behavioral therapy, it states that you have our circumstances, which are those external things that are going on around you that we don't have control over. And mm -hmm. then we have our interpretation of those events. So that's our thoughts or how we make sense of things. And mm -hmm. those thoughts, not the circumstances, but the thoughts about the circumstances is what dictates how we feel and those emotions drive our behaviors. And so that is like the closest thing to behavior and performance is emotions. And yeah. so if you aren't in a good emotional state, and we know this, right? Because our emotions completely affect our ability to focus, our motivation, our mood, our energy, like so much. And that I can't think of a more important thing to think about in the workplace, which is then makes sense to me why we actually know for a fact that EQ is more important than IQ in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you have statistics like companies globally spending $300 billion on stress-related, employee-related stress, you realize that this is a huge problem. Employee well-being and burnout is a real thing that has to be addressed. And it's funny because the things that create happiness are also the things that can reduce stress and burnout. They're sort of two sides of, of, yeah, of a coin. And so the second myth that I would like to debunk, if I could, is the idea that you can't create your happiness. You can't control it. It's just this thing you feel. Well, you've just explained why. There's a filter between events and your behavior, and it's called your thoughts. So if we can learn to sort of manage our thoughts and realize that we do have control over our happiness. That's like ground zero. One way that I control my happiness is I recognize that number one, however I'm feeling right now is temporary. And I have 
so many experiences in my life where I know, oh, it was really bad that day. But guess what? Two days later, it wasn't so bad. That's number one, just knowing that things change and things evolve. And then number two, surrounding myself with the things that divert my attention away from the fear and the pain of the bombs falling in the village, right? And focus my attention on what makes me happy. And for me, it's music. That's why I'm a seasoned musician, songwriter, and producer. I do it with fervor. I'm avid because I know that's my therapy. I go into that musical state, play with my band or playing by myself, and I'm just, I'm home. So we find those things that bring happiness into our lives. And then the last thing is we build habits around them. That's the superpower that so many people ignore. Habit making is how human beings survive and thrive. So any behavior I want, I can turn it into a habit, then my mind takes over and it's automatic. And once it's automatic, I can literally switch on happiness anytime I want because I've built habits around those things. So I think reducing stress, building up happiness, all of these things, once we move them into the category of behaviors we can control, and then we turn those behaviors into habits, we become the true masters of our destiny. And so what are some happiness habits that we should be focused on? All right. I'll start from a very, very cheap and quick example. In my podcast, I always ask my guests to smile <laughs> so that I can capture a picture of that smile. Here's the interesting thing. Whenever I do that smile, I know I'm pretending, right? Like, hey, I'm not smiling. I'm, I'm pretending to smile. But my goodness, that smile, I start to feel things. Like little, it's not goosebumps. It's like a wave of something goes through me. Before you know it, I'm happy again. Because actions precede feelings. I can actually act my way to feeling a certain way. And so to answer your question, a simple smile can make the difference in a situation where you are like, okay, let me bring on the happy right now. I got this. I'm going to do this. You're in this tough situation and you just smile and you make people around you feel comfortable and you sort of find yourself feeling better about the situation. But I think happiness behaviors, I'm going to answer that question more directly by saying there are two kinds of happiness. A lot of people confuse happiness with the first kind, which is what we call hedonic happiness. And it's really all about pl seeking pleasure. You know, mm -hmm. I feel good today. La, 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 la. That's all hedonic happiness. And guess what? Hedonic happiness is not what creates profit in organizations. Let's get a ping pong table in the foyer. That's not what creates a happy, productive, and profitable organization. It's the second kind of happiness. And that's called eudaimonic happiness, which is more related to employee engagement, to feelings of real connectedness to the task at hand, the purpose. Really, this goes all the way back to Aristotle, who talked about this. But I wish someone had named it better, because I don't like the word eudaimonic. <laughs> and so I took that whole body of literature and research and work, and I renamed it profitable happiness, right? So when we focus on eudaimonic happiness, we are more engaged, we're more connected to what we are trying to do. And that's when organizations become more profitable. Yeah, I've never actually heard that term. I mean, I've heard of hedonic happiness. The eudaimonic happiness is totally new for me. But yeah, I'm, it's I'm the so exact opposite. E-U-D-A-I-M-O-N-I-C. And the reason I don't like it is like, it almost sounds like daimonic, demonic. I don't, I don't want to be talking about anything that's 
you demonic. It seems like, what's that? But it is actually, if you look that up, that was a term brought to the world by Aristotle, and it describes a kind of happiness that is all about deeper meaning, deeper engagement, flow, like that state mm -hmm. of flow where you're lost in time and you're just mm -hmm. really engaged in your work. That's a, a form of happiness that is what we want in organizations. Right. And flow is an example of something that happens when we're engaged in our work. And in order for us to be engaged in our work, we have to feel safe. We have to be passionate, like all those things kind of come together. And yep. so this is really important for us to know what we need to focus on, know what not to focus on and get out of this quiet desperation that you talked about and yeah. actually do the things that bring us happiness as individuals in the workplace, as well as if you're a leader, bring happiness to the people that you're managing or the people that work for your company, because the happier they are, the more profitable you'll be. And ultimately, the more hedonic happiness you'll have. Exactly. And I think it all comes back to what you brought to the fore at the very beginning, which is it's about culture. And we both agreed that culture starts from the top and it works its way down. But sometimes we need help. If we're going to create cultures of happiness and engagement and good employee experiences, we need some help. And what I've found is that writing a book is a good place to start. We do the research and we put all our information in a book. But the real help that can make things happen in practice is software. And that's why I developed software called Profitable Happiness, which allows an entire team, an entire organization to be focused on employee engagement, on employee experience, on employee happiness and well-being every single week, not just once at the end of the year or some survey that is sent out every quarter. Every single week, people get a chance to interact on these topics and it builds habits of happiness for that organization. And I know that you offer free demos for anybody who has a company. So if they're interested in that, where do they go? Well, if anybody wants to learn about profitable happiness and see a demonstration of the software, yeah. you can do two things. You could either find me on LinkedIn, which is where I am. And my handle is Dr. Pele, D-R-P-E-L-E. -E. So linkedin.com forward slash I-N forward slash Dr. Play, like everyone else, right? Right. Uh -huh. That's one place. The second place they can find me is on my personal website, which is drpele.com, D-R-P-E-L-E.com. And the final place is profitablehappiness.com, which is the software itself. And if you reach out to me on any of those areas and you would like to see a demonstration of the Profitable Happiness culture building software, myself or one of my team members will absolutely give you a full demonstration of the software. Fantastic. Now, a last question. So for companies who've already taken you up on this and they're utilizing the software, what are some of the real data kind of results that you've seen as a result of using it over time? Well, the one thing I'm seeing is people saying to us that what was invisible is now visible. If you think about it, most of the things we talk about, stress, burnout, happiness, these things are felt, not seen in numbers, the way the profitable side is. You see sales results, you see graphs are around customer feedback, and all those things are visible. But never do we have something around that says, hey, here's how happy we are, or here's how engaged we are. Of course, we get that once a year. But now, if you have a consistent weekly assessment 
of these softer things that employees have to feel like happiness. Now you have made it visible. So people like to say it's now visible. And then they can compare the happiness stuff with the profitable stuff in one graph. And now they know exactly what's going on. Another thing that I hear is people like the fact that it's AI driven, meaning they can click a button and ask a question about how to improve the culture, how to reduce stress further or improve happiness based on the data that currently exists. So to answer your question more directly, which was, what are people saying in terms of what is it doing basically for their bottom line? They're recognizing now that they can actually see there's a correlation between how happy employees are and how they're performing. And once they catch where things are going wrong or going right, they can do more of those things that are going right or less of the things that are going wrong. They now have control over their culture. So you're shining a light on what's actually going on that they may not have been aware of. So as we yeah. say, self-awareness is always the first place to be. And then from that place, they might say, oh, I didn't realize how unhappy our people are. And then once they realize that, what do they do about it? Do they go into the AI to find the solutions or do you provide some solutions for them? They can go straight into the AI and say, hey, look at our company right now, all the data. And tell me, based on this data, someone like a Marshall Goldsmith might say to help us fix it or just tell us how to fix it, period. And I like to tell the joke of with AI, you can either ask that question of a Marshall Goldsmith or a Stephen Covey, or you could pay $100,000 to get Marshall Goldsmith to come talk to you for one hour, your choice. You'll get the same basic advice. I'll give you one quick example of how powerful this is. Every week, one of the questions, of course, is how happy were you the week before? But also another question you get every week is, how appreciated did you feel right. from your manager? That's such a powerful question. All the research shows that manager appreciation really drives so many positive things like engagement, experience, and so on for companies. So if you can ask that question and see the graphs and then see when people are feeling it organization-wide, oh my goodness, your managers will get in line. And they will all start to make sure that those numbers get better by behaving in the way that allows the anonymous points to be recorded. I'm guessing, oh. Dr. Pillay, that when you were working at your former company, you did not feel appreciated by your manager. No, and I didn't have any graphs and he didn't have any graphs showing him that his employees are not feeling appreciated. And imagine if he could see that. He might have changed some of his behaviors because it's visible now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I think it's a great opportunity for people to increase their awareness of what's going on in real time on the ground so that they can make those changes that will ultimately improve their bottom line by, as you say, taking care of people's happiness. So thank you, Dr. Pillay. And for all of you thinkers out there, what did you think of the show? If you're a feeler, how did hearing this make you feel? For all of you doers, what are you going to do based on what you've heard? Now, regardless of what your personality code might be, my goal is to spread the word that burnout is a unique experience, and by decoding it, you can find solutions that are equally unique to you. Help me spread this message by subscribing to the show on Apple or Spotify and leaving us a review, telling us what you think, feel, or do differently because of the show. And if you're watching us on YouTube, you can leave me a comment or questions to answer in future episodes. And please recommend the show to anyone struggling with burnout. If you are ready to take the next step with me to DYB, go to decodeyourburnout.com and I'll see you right back here next week. Bye, everybody.